0: Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Today, we'll be speaking with four contributors to the summer issue of Tricycle out this May. First up are psychotherapist Mindy Newman and translator and musician Kaya Fisher. Together, over the past year, they have presented a series of teachings from a newly translated Tibetan Sutra. Through their collaborative writing practice, Mindy and Kaya have been able to explore psychology and scriptural exegesis, Buddhist storytelling, and guru devotion in the Tibetan tradition. Mindy Newman and Kaya Fisher, welcome to Tricycle Talks. Hello. It's our pleasure. You've contributed stories from the Karma Shataka Sutra with commentary over the course of a year. How did the two of you start working together?
1: So Kaya and I met at the um, teachings of Pakyo Rinpoche, a monk who lives in Jackson Heights, and we quickly became friends. And Kaya would regale me with stories from another one of the texts that they have been translating. And I'm going to see if I say it right, and Kaya will correct me, Divinia Shudraka Vastu.
2: Vinaya Kshudraka Vastu, that's right.
1: Okay, it was close. Um, And Kaya is an amazing storyteller. So Kaya would have me practically rolling on the ground laughing, telling me different stories from this text, which was actually written to essentially teach monks and nuns about their vows. So there are all these stories explaining what they have different vows. And so I used to basically beg Kaya to tell me more of these stories. And then we started talking about the Karmashataka and let's write something about it. I think it was really an opportunity for the two of us to spend time together and talk a lot about these stories. It's incredibly fun.
0: How do you split up the work, or at least with the series of articles we
1: ran in the magazine? We basically meet every (laughs) week for a couple Mm -hmm. of hours, and we literally write everything word by word um, together. Really? Yeah.
0: It's co-written then. Codependent is the word
2: (laughs) you're Yes, it
1: is also codependent. (laughs) Codependently co-written, yep.
0: Has it ever been rocky?
1: (laughs) I don't think so. No, no. fun.
2: Yeah. I actually commend this practice of like finding a good Dharma friend to hang out and read sutras with. It doesn't feel like a discipline, Mm -hmm. but it's something that we undertake regularly. And for me, it's a real side of spiritual growth.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we definitely relate the stories that we're writing about to our own lives. So that's parts that doesn't make it into the article, but we definitely like co-reflect on how the stories land for us and what they mean for us in terms of our spiritual practice. We've talked about together how Being in this process has made us realize the importance of not just being part of a formal Sangha, but having Dharma Mm -hmm. friends that you spend time with and really talk about your spiritual practice and enjoy it with. It's been really valuable.
0: That sounds really wonderful. You know, Mindy says you're such a good storyteller, Kaya. Why don't you tell us about the story in the current issue about a woman named Kachankala?
2: The story of Kachankala is one in which there's a woman who has gone out for water and Lord Buddha is in the vicinity. And she sees him from a distance. And Lord Buddha has a kind of theme song in these texts. There's a kind of passage that's used to describe him many times when he appears. And it sort of goes into his splendor, his beauty, and his his sort of fantastic serenity of his comportment. And it says something like, he shone like a lamp set in a golden vessel. If that golden vessel were hung on a tree and that tree were covered in jewels, you know, it goes on and on. and it, And it sort of always plays. And I think of it as his sort of like, you know. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider... It's like his little theme song, like, here he comes, here he comes! And so she sees him in the distance, and he is so familiar to her that she thinks it's her son. And we're not told in the story whether she has a son or not. We have no idea. But she at any rate thinks that Lord Buddha is her son, and she hastens to put down her water and runs to him, hollering, my son, my son! And she wants to uh, throw her arms around him. And one of the things that we noted as we were working on the article... You read and reread these stories and things occur to you. And so in this case, we were noting like, at the time, it wouldn't have been appropriate for her and Lord Buddha to have physical contact. The monks were strictly prohibited from physical contact with members of the opposite sex. And so the monks who are there in attendance of Lord Buddha step in to try to stop her. And Lord Buddha says, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. There's this funny phrase he says, "If if she doesn't embrace me, she will spew warm blood from her mouth and die. Which is a phrase that appears a few times in this cycle of texts. And I'm not sure if it's an idiom or if this is what he is sort of predicting. If anyone knows, they can write to us and tell us. But that's what he says. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a declaration of how horrible it will be for her if she can't touch him. And he says, it's okay. And she puts her arms around him and there's a sort of moment. And then she has some sort of realization, you know, like, oh, wait, that she's holding not her son, but the Buddha. And she sits down in front of him to hear the Dharma. And he gives her a teaching, which becomes the site of great attainment for her.
0: So she then becomes a nun and a foremost interpreter of the sutras. That's correct.
2: So yeah, she goes on to be declared foremost interpreter of the sutras. And so then the Karmashataka pivot is the monks ask, well, why did this happen? And Lord Buddha tells the backstory.
0: So Mindy, what was your take on her encounter with the Buddha? And why did you pick this one to present to us?
1: There were a couple of different things, but I guess because in this partnership that I have with Kaya, I take the Buddhist psychotherapist role. So I'll use the Buddhist psychotherapist angle. I found it fascinating because in all of the Karma shataka stories, there's a past life explanation for why the characters are experiencing what they're experiencing in the present lifetime that's addressed. And one of the things that's mentioned in the story of Kachankala is that she had actually been the Buddha's mother In the past, many times, correct me if I get any of this wrong, Kaya, but because of her clinging attachment to him, he wasn't able to basically go off into refuge, you know, go forth. And so he prayed, may I have a different mother in the next lifetime? You know, talk about a psychotherapist field day. I mean, you know, I spend a lot of my time <laughs> listening to people talk about their relationships with their mothers and all different kinds of mothers. And there was something so touching and human to me about a mother who was having a hard time letting go of her beloved son, so much so that in a future lifetime, even though he wasn't her son in that lifetime, that muscle memory was there, and she took off running towards him. So I found it just unbearably touching both that she had this attachment and also that the Buddha knew that for him to become the Buddha, he needed the great Maya essentially to become his mother in a future lifetime. And that when he prays for Kachankala to not be his mother in a future lifetime, it's not shaming. It's not punitive. It's not, she's bad. There's no judgment of her. It's just, these are not the right causes and conditions for his awakening. And so he needs different causes and conditions.
0: I have to say, I've never come across anything quite like this where A woman runs up to the Buddha and throws her arms around him. So it really does stand out. As a therapist, Mindy, I I get get why you might find this especially interesting. Kaya, how do you relate to it?
2: Yes, it's interesting that the story tells us exactly what you're saying, which is the monks Mm -hmm. come and they say, this has never happened before. I said well this is a totally unprecedented why did it happen and so i think you're right that it's rare that said there is a story in the go where the opposite takes place where a man sees the buddha and says my son my son and he comes it's a parallel story and so what that raises for me is the utility of the stories right they're teaching stories and so the question is who needs to hear those stories right mm-hmm. which of us needs to hear mm-hmm. you know it needs to be encouraged to release our own attachment to our children or maybe be willing to deal in a straightforward manner with the attachment of our parents or something like that.
0: So I was wondering for both of you, how did your understanding of karma change in reading this Sutra?
1: Hmm, That's a great question. Every time we chose a story and every time we wrote an article, through the process of that writing and the process of exploring the story, it was always hopeful. It was always, look what's possible for these characters, and therefore, look what's possible for us. And so we really set out to challenge this idea of bad karma. Things are our fault. A woman like Kachankala, who was so attached that she was impeding the Buddha's enlightenment, became a nun by the end of the story. So the possibility inherent in the idea of karma is the thing that really has stayed with me.
2: Kaya? Kaya? To follow up on what Mindy's saying, Lord Buddha in the stories, very rarely does he give anyone's backstory in their presence. It's something he explains to the monks later. He never turns to someone and says, you did a bad thing and now you're like this. One of the takeaways for me was the teachings on karma are never meant to be used that way because Lord Buddha never used them that way. He uses them to inspire people to do better right, by using stories about other folks. But he never shames someone to their face for something they did in a past life the way that, you know, we might be tempted to do. One of the other takeaways for me was that very small deeds show up ripening into these incredible things in future lifetimes. And the third takeaway is that there are a number of stories about what is on people's mind at the moment of their death. Like that at the moment of their death, they turn their thoughts to their teacher or to, say, Shariputra or Lord Buddha, and that that thought alone really rockets them into a terrific future rebirth. Though the teachings on POA or transference of consciousness aren't in the text explicitly, the foundations for them are there. And it really brought home to me the importance of where our minds are or our hearts are at the time of our death.
0: One of the things I found really inspiring is that people often have a misconception of what karma is. They confuse it with fate or determinism. In this, there's some agency and we can change our karma in the moment. Whether you believe in rebirth or whether you understand it in a more secular context, So that was a really great thing to have affirmed, the positive spin you put on it. Because for so many, it's punitive and negative. For instance, somebody gets sick and they try to explain, oh, that's their karma. Or Hmm. uh, somebody has run of bad luck and they say, oh, it's punishment. How did these stories dispel for you those negative aspects?
1: One thing that I certainly thought about a lot was skillful means like what is skillful? And I'm certainly not an expert, but maybe there's some way that you could think about karma and say, okay, if you believe in a past life, many lifetimes ago, a person behaved in X way and that karma ripened into this present time in the form of an illness. But is that skillful? You know, if if it results in shame and closing in and feeling worthless and hopeless, how skillful is that as a way of thinking about things? And my understanding from friends I have, one friend I'm thinking of in particular from my clinical internship many years ago, who's Thai and grew up Buddhist, and she and I would have these conversations. And she basically let me know that where she grew up, this idea of, oh, I've done something bad in a past life, and that's why I'm experiencing this now, was actually a way of de-shaming it was like, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I did it a long time ago, so I'm not going to give myself a hard time. It was totally opposite sort of of what we experience. And so that combined with, as Kaya mentioned, in terms of how Buddha presents in the stories, there's no shaming in the stories. There was just no reason for it to be in that frame.
0: That feels like a very psychological take once again. I mean, I appreciate it. Yeah. I wonder, on the other hand, when the traditional sense of karma ripens, what our relationship to that can be, and Mindy, I'm sort of hearing that. What is my relationship to this outcome? And how I relate to it is whether or not I create future karma. Is that fair to say, Kaya? I don't know.
2: Mindy is absolutely correct to say that the way that we, when I say we, I mean Buddhist practitioners in the United States, tend to talk about karma reflexively is often a carryover from Christian notions or from constitutional law or something like that. You did something wrong and a punishment comes. And those are often notions that we bring to the text. In Tibetan communities, for instance, if someone says it was karma, that means there was nothing you could have done. This was set in motion long before now. And whatever striving you did now was powerless against this thing because it was greater. And that sounds very hard. But James, I want to suggest that you could think about this as a parallel to what we call systematic oppression. Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There are things that people who came long before you, born a long time ago, decisions they made, even really small decisions, we're gonna write a law like this, we're gonna use this word or that word, that gave rise to situations about which you are almost powerless to do anything today. You're in social circumstances, you're in cultural circumstances, you're in personal circumstances that feel intractable, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about systematic oppression, that's one language we have for talking about this here. The difference is that in Buddhism, there's a through line of awareness, right? And that on the basis of that through line of awareness from the past is designated something called a mind stream and past and future lives. And so it's at once like this completely new notion for many of us. And it's also kind of eerily familiar if you think about it in a certain way. Does that help at all?
0: Yeah, that definitely does. I think that view can help us also not to internalize or pass judgment on ourselves for circumstances over which we have no control or may not have even caused. Mindy, it sounds to me like this sutra and these stories had some impact on your practice with your Mm -hmm. therapy clients. I wonder how that kind of shows up in your interaction with them. Let's say you have a therapy client who has a secular view. They don't believe in past lives, but how does this shape how you relate to them?
1: I think that what these stories illustrate mimic something that i definitely try to apply to my therapy clients but also myself in any any relationship really which is to have a much wider and larger view. So if that wider and larger view is over the course of lifetimes that's great and certainly you know i have clients that want to talk to me about intergenerational trauma for example and generations of things that have happened right. in their family but if it's just a wider view in terms of how they are in their lives I was talking to one of my mentors today about what happens when, you know, clients that tend towards dissociation or depersonalization kind of have a moment where they're splintering, falling apart in their sense of self. And he said something that I think really illustrates this point. He said, it's amazing how quickly people can knit back together. We don't have to reify ourselves as being only one thing or only one way, or my karma is this, or I am this we can be much more expansive in terms of how we think about ourselves. And I can be expansive in terms of how I think about my clients and what's possible for them. And they're not just how they are in this moment or this year, but you know, what's been possible past and future for them. What I think puts the Buddhism and Buddhist psychotherapy is emptiness. You know, symptoms are the product of causes and conditions that come together and they can dissolve. So any dysfunction, but I'm using dysfunction lightly, it is impermanent. It can, under the right conditions, change, and we can fundamentally change. And so I think that expansiveness, the karma shataka has kind of a lovely way of reinforcing that.
0: Well, that's great. You know, Kaya, I wonder how this sutra resonates in your life and work. I mean, it's so funny the way it was picked for you so randomly, yet it seems that you and Mindy both have embraced it and made such use of it. We first undertook this translation,
2: I think, 10 or 12 years ago, and it took about three and a half years to finish it. And there was a very long editing process and then, and then a process of revisiting it. To read these stories and have the Buddha as a character in your life, in your headspace, in your heart, a little bit each day over a long period of time has made such a tremendous difference to how I think, how I feel, how I go about my day, quite almost aside from the technical contents of the stories. It's just the Buddha is there. His students are there. The practitioners are there. I always forget if it's Asanga or Atisha who said, when your faith flags, read the sutras. Mm. And I really understand that instruction now because these stories, if you return to them just five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, it has such a cumulative effect on the way you go through your day. And so for me, more so even than the sort of specific teachings, which can also be very impactful, just this gentle practice of returning to these great stories has been really powerful.
0: Well, it's been a wonderful partnership and our readers have certainly benefited from it. And so have I. But before we leave, I just wonder if each of you would like to say something about what you hope our listeners take away from these stories.
1: Mm. Part of what I hope the readers take away is the power of storytelling as a valid way of exploring the Dharma, that there is a rich tradition of Buddhist storytelling that is fun and engaging and available. And is a wonderful way to sit and contemplate the Dharma and its impact on your life. So I hope the readers will become intrigued in and and more interested in reading the wonderful Buddhist stories.
0: I certainly do. Kaya?
2: We were talking about the notion of bad karma, that karma isn't used as a tool for blame, and I hope that we were clear that if you undertake a non virtuous action, that something negative does not result. That's not at all what we're saying, right? right? Mm -hmm. If anything, the teachings, insofar as we've understood them at all, the teachings on karma really bring home for me sort of the adultness. It's very adult. It's like, if you do a terrible thing, it has terrible results. It's very simple. There's no getting off scot-free for anyone, in a sense. For me, one of the big takeaways is like, what we do really, really, really matters, and it matters more than we dare to believe. And so everything, every decision we make is very important.
0: Mindy Newman and Kaya Fisher, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, James.
0: Poet and short story writer Suvankang Tamavongsa is a rising star in the literary world. Born in a Lao refugee camp in Thailand and raised in Toronto, Tama Vongsa is known for her nuanced reflections on immigrant and refugee experiences. Today, she joins us to talk about her family's history, the power and limits of language, dislocation, and themes of loss woven throughout her short story, How to Pronounce Knife, which appears in the current issue. Suvankam, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for
3: having me as a guest.
0: That's a real pleasure. Your book of short stories tells a broad range of immigrant experiences, and I'd like to start by talking about your own family's experience briefly. You grew up in Canada, I believe, and your parents were originally from Laos, and yes. you came via Thailand. Is that right?
3: Yes. Both my parents were born in Vientiane, Laos, and They built a raft made of bamboo to get to the Lao refugee camp in Thailand, in Nong Khai, and that's where I was born. We were sponsored by a church in Canada, and that's how we came to Canada, by plane.
0: The story that we feature is Edge of the World, and it's fiction, but it's written in the first person, and I was wondering how much of your own experience is there? I mean, obviously, it's informed by the immigrant experience, but how much are you a part of these stories?
3: Well, the wonderful and powerful thing about fiction is sometimes it can tell the truth a lot better than real life. Even if we look to the news, for example, there was never any news stories about us when we arrived. Or even today, whenever we hear about immigrants or refugees, they tend to be very sad and traumatic, or they are impossible to achieve. For example, you can only hear about immigrants and refugees when they're incredibly successful, but the ordinary in-between lives are rarely seen, the ones who are trying to get to the next minute, the next hour, the next year, the ones who just want to live next door, to have work a place to go to every single day to earn a living. Those moments and those ordinary people are rarely seen and heard from.
0: That pretty much describes the story that we selected for the summer issue. And in it, there is a a schoolgirl and her parents. And at a certain point, there's a real break between the mother and daughter in the story. Can you say something about that?
3: That's right. The child goes to school and learns that the world is round. And she discovers that her mother doesn't know this. But instead of feeling ashamed or embarrassed, she thinks about what her mother does know and what she doesn't know and why that is in the world. Often when we think about knowledge, we think that knowing things is a value, but sometimes people know what they know because that's their experience. And trying to understand someone's experience and where that might come from is the value of the story.
0: There's also a similar difference in background and experience between the father and the daughter. And when the mother abandons the family when she leaves, you write this about her father. To lose your love, to be abandoned by your wife, was a thing of luxury even. It meant you were alive. Can you say something about that?
3: Yes. To choose is a thing of luxury. And when the mother leaves, she chooses that. Just as when the father doesn't mourn that loss, he chooses that too. And the reason why he makes that choice is because he's been grieving um, and he can only take things one at a time. And the most important thing to him is the lived experience of being alive.
0: And for the child...
3: The child, to her, it's having known the mother, however briefly that is, and the memory of the mother and her laughter, and to be able to create in the sound of laughter, a memory is also a thing of power. The thing about my characters is I don't feel sorry for them. I don't pity them. I don't have to prove that they are human beings. I write from the point of view that they are, and I don't have to prove that on the page. I could have ended the story there with the father, you know, not crying because the thing that he has grieved the most, he's already grieved. I end it with the image of a person's mouth and the sound that comes out of there. And the reason I do that is because laughter is the cornerstone of these stories. I think how we form laughter, how laughter can uplift or destroy its variations, its meanings, the force that you make with laughter, how it can exclude and include with a joke. Those are the concerns and the art of this book.
0: So I think I've read elsewhere that you also saw laughter as a way of caring for oneself or protecting oneself. So in other words, at the end, the woman laughs and it sort of wraps her in a kind of space that is a way of dealing with the grief of that loss. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. In that closing scene... She could cry, you know, that's a normal, unoriginal response, and it's perfectly fine. But she chooses to laugh because life can be so absurd that it's kind of funny, strange, kind of funny. Actually, that last scene was inspired by a real event. I heard laughter in the air vent late one night, and I just wondered what could make a person laugh like that at this hour of the night. And then I just wrote that story based on the sound that I heard.
0: Oh, that's great, because in this story, it's other people who are possibly hearing the laughter and wondering what could make a woman like that laugh at this hour. <laughs> that was that was actually a joyful moment. Just to go back to grief for a moment, because you write something about it that seems so aptly descriptive. Would you mind reading the part that I just sent you?
3: Sure. Edge of the world. The dream might last only a few seconds, but that's all it takes, really, to undo the time that has passed and has been put between us. I wake from these dreams, raw, a child still, though I am 45 now and grieve the loss of her again and again.
0: So what really struck me about that is that the character has a dream of her mother and the immediacy of grief, the way it works in time, how completely it revisits us as if it happened yesterday. That's just something that really struck me and rang so true for me.
3: I think grief, when we feel it, it's never really over. We re-experience it in different ways. There's the understanding that the person isn't there anymore. But I think the real grief comes after the funeral, the event that celebrates the life, the little things that are incredibly personal and are not public to other people, like somebody's voicemail, the sounds that they make or don't make, their airs, a chair, their clothes, or when you have a moment and you feel really, really happy, and then your mind reminds you that you've lost this person. But also, even if you haven't lost the physical body of that person, you can also grieve somebody who's living that you can't see. There's no closure. And should they? truly physically leave the world and not be anymore you can't ever know and uh grief is not simple it's complicated and you feel it over and over and it's not a choice you know you may want to move on you may even be tired of feeling like you miss this person but there it is in your mind or in your dreams where you can't control the images or the feelings and your mind forces you to remember the first loss or a loss again and again, no matter where you are or how old you are or what you've gained or lost in the process of your life. Once you experience a grief, you grieve it over and over
0: Right. Maybe that's why small losses can bring back memories of original or earlier losses. It's not really up to us, it seems, how it can flood the mind out of nowhere. Right. You know, there's so much space in these stories. There's so much room for imagination, I noticed. For instance, in this story, it's not even until the last line that I realized the gender of the child. I realized, oh, it was a girl and this is a woman. And yet I had such a sense of of this person's presence with so little detail. It's so spare and yet so descriptive and evocative.
3: I think you don't have to tell a reader what a character looks like. You can build it with their voice, how they put together a sentence, what they pick and choose to notice about the world what they love, who they love, who they're surrounded by, who they've lost, those things make a character. It doesn't have to be a name or any particular physical thing. It's the voice of the story that makes the character feel real.
0: I had such a strong sense of this character that by the time she's a woman laughing in the mirror, I felt like the picture was complete. And yet at the same time, I had a sense that she still had a future and would continue to evolve. But I just thought it was brilliant at how real this person came to me without really many details describing her. But I also like to say that not all the stories are sad. You know, not all of these experiences are full of grief, abandonment, loss, or their dislocation. Although dislocation is certainly a theme. Do you want to say something about the joy also? Of these experiences?
3: One thing we don't really get to see from refugees and the immigrants is the feeling of being ungrateful. That's a feeling we're not allowed to feel. That we're supposed to take every little bit of thing and feel grateful. There's the pressure to be grateful just to be alive. But in these stories, they experience feeling ungrateful. They own and are in charge of their own businesses. They fight back. They don't want to fit in. They want their own language. They're proud of who they are and where they come from. When they mispronounce things, they're not sad or ashamed or embarrassed. They know that they're alone with the language, and they know that the language is tricky. For example, in the story, chicka Chi. It's about children who go trick-or-treating and they pronounce it as chick-a-chee. They mispronounce it. And it doesn't really matter what the correct pronunciation is. The fact is that the candy is in the bag. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) I guess that's what's important.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And in the end, when someone tries to correct them, they're not embarrassed at all. And in fact, they correct the teacher when she says, do you mean trick-or-treating? And they said, no, we went chick a And they say it with absolute confidence and certainty. And in my experience growing up, my own family, we were in charge of how we viewed ourselves if I went to school and felt I was seen as poor because I had a hole in my shoe, I would come home and tell my parents that, and they would teach me how to laugh at that. Like, for example, they would say, well, your shoe is just high tech, you know, come summer, it'll be the rage, you're head of fashion. And, you know, we would laugh together and I would forget that I needed a new shoe and my parents made me laugh and I would forget that they were also trying to say that I wouldn't get a new shoe.
0: You know, in how to pronounce a knife, you do something similar with a mispronunciation of a word and how your parents respond to that. That reminds me a little bit of the story you just told about Chikachi.
3: Yeah. Isn't it kind of strange and funny that there's a letter out there in the front. It's the first one. And you know They call themselves educated, but what a waste to use (laughs) a letter and not give it a voice, a sound at all.
0: Speaking of language, you inhabited a world in which you spoke two languages. And sometimes if you speak another language, you can feel like a different person. One of the languages is one you speak at home and the other that you speak in school and out in the world. What was that like for you?
3: Well, at home, I spoke Lao with my parents because they didn't speak English very well. It took away their power, their sense of humor, and their authority as parents. You don't want your parent sounding and trying to navigate the world with the vocabulary of a two-year-old. So at home, we spoke Lao. And at school, I spoke English. My parents felt that because I would probably spend the next 13 or more years in school, I'd eventually pick up English, whereas Lao would would be a language that I might lose over time. And actually, you know, I rarely speak Lao and I speak it like a two-year-old. And, you know, my own sense of humor, my authority is lost when I try to speak Lao because It's not a language that I feel comfortable with or that I can create and work with the way that I can do that in the English language.
0: You know, you have said a few things about the Lao language, uh, particularly about how it sounds often represent the words it's meant to express. It's onomatopoetic. Your knowledge of the language may be limited, but it's what you grew up hearing. Does that have any effect on the way you write?
3: Definitely. I mean, I look at a story like Irk, it is the sound of rusty hinges. And you don't know what that story means until you read it. And then once you read it, you can't undo what you know. I'm not afraid to use a sound to title a story.
0: You know, I'm curious, when did you start writing? I mean, you had early success. I think you won an award in college. Is that right?
3: Um, I did, but I also won some in high school. As a teenager, our school encouraged us to submit to teen magazines. And I was like, I'm not submitting to a teen magazine. (laughs) I want to write within a larger pool. Um, And I submitted to an adult magazine and I won a prize. Actually, I grew up in a home without books. And any time I saw a bookshelf, I would ask my parents to take a picture of me in front of it, the way that, you know, when we go on vacation, we ask photos be taken of the things we think we won't see again. Um, And that was my experience of books and writing. And I, I get asked a lot, you know, how do you become a writer if you grew up in that way? Where does your love of books come from? And I would have to say a writer can come from anywhere. What my parents gave me was an imagination. It costs nothing and I had it and I used it and I wanted to write, but I didn't know how to become one or how to get there. A lot of writers often go through an MFA program, but I didn't do that either. I guess I made things a bit harder on myself. And also, I wrote poetry for two decades. Uh, I wrote four poetry books before I wrote How to Pronounce Knife. And you don't debut something at the age of 43. You don't change the trajectory of your writing and try to reinvent yourself. But I did.
0: But I would also think that the spare quality of the writing is in its own way poetic. I mean, how do you see your short story collection in relation to your poetry?
3: I view both forms as art, you know, the way some artists only work with the color blue or plastics or cement. I work with words. It doesn't matter if it's a poem or a short story. At the end of the day, you think of the word after the word after the word. If I can dramatize the snow or the dark or the light, I can dramatize people and I can always find a new way or a refreshing way to say something that we've encountered our whole lives. For example, the description of the sky at night. I don't just say it's dark in the story Paris. I say that the sky was black like the middle of an eye, and that's an opening sentence. But that's also learning how to write about the ordinary.
0: Right. And in the story of Paris, I don't think Paris even makes an appearance. Is that right?
3: That's right. (laughs) The only time we see it is in the title. And that's something that poetry taught me, too, that a title is as valuable as the text. And every reader enters that story with the idea of Paris its sophistication, its culture, it's the city of love, and yet we encounter none of that. We're so far away from it, and we're haunted going into the story because it takes place in a chicken processing plant, and all we see is blood and guts and the smell of something turned inside out.
0: I have to ask, since we're a Buddhist publication, did you have any relationship to Buddhism growing up?
3: Well, both my parents are Buddhists. When we were in the refugee camp, we had tried to get sponsored to come to America. But the problem was that when you're born in a refugee camp, you aren't given a birth certificate. The ties don't recognize you or make you a citizen. You are stateless. You belong to nobody. And that's what I was. Whereas the Catholic Church in Canada that we could come to Canada if I got baptized and had a baptism certificate, which in Canada is treated as a document of a life. And so I was baptized and we were sponsored by the church because of that document itself.
0: Did you grow up with any religious affiliation?
3: My parents were very involved in the Buddhist communities, and we would go every Sunday. And my experience of it was how incredible the food was. (laughs) After prayer, there would be bags and bags of candy for the children. The smell of the food, and the cheer, and the laughter, and the prayer. That's what I remember of my childhood.
0: Does that find its way into your writing?
3: Absolutely. That scene in Edge of the World where you allow someone they're not knowing, where you don't judge, even if that knowing is different from yours. That part where the father doesn't cry because he can imagine something worse than that. I remember being told that you shouldn't Cry at a funeral because it keeps the soul around worrying about you. And so at funerals, I experience them as places of celebration and happiness and not one of tears and anguish.
0: Well, Suvankam Tamavongsa, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for contributing to Tricycle. And I certainly hope our paths cross again. We'll keep an eye on your writing.
3: Thanks for having me. And thank you for featuring the story. I'm really thankful for your time.
0: And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor, St. John's College. We'll be right back.
4: St. John's College is the nation's great books college where students of all ages can learn from classic works by Plato, Austin, Baldwin. Morrison, Mozart, and more this summer. Deep reading and deep conversation reign during week-long summer programs with in-person and online options. The Summer Classics Program for Adults in Santa Fe is driven by the spirit of lifelong learning. Grounded in timeless ideas and driven by lively conversation, explore timeless works of fiction or nonfiction, poetry, science, the arts, or philosophy for intellectually curious high school students, the St. John's Summer Academy is a hands-on pre-college program that helps students hone their reading, critical thinking, and discussion skills with engaging workshops and off-campus excursions in Santa Fe and Annapolis. Learn more about online and in-person summer programs at sjc.edu summer 2021. That's sjc.edu slash summer 2021.
0: For the first time, Buddhists from virtually every tradition can be found living side-by-side in North American cities. In his feature article, The Land of Many Dharmas, Kenneth Tanaka, a Jodo Shin priest and professor emeritus at Tokyo's Musashino University, explores America as a site of unprecedented religious pluralism. He asks what this means for the future, especially in light of the recent wave of anti Asian violence. Hi, Ken. Thanks for being here today.
5: It's my pleasure. Well,
0: you have an article called Land of Dharmas in the upcoming issue of Tricycle. And I'd like to start with a quote from Diana Eck. You quote her saying, in 1993, Buddhism is now an American religion. Since Buddhism has been here since the middle of the 19th century, how do you understand her statement?
5: One of the features of American Buddhism is that all the Buddhist schools are now here in America, which is significant. When I give talks about American Buddhism is to ask the audience which city or metropolitan area in the world has the largest number of Buddhist schools, and people say Taiwan or Bangkok or Kyoto, (laughs) and and I tell them, no, 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 it's Los Angeles or, you know, (laughs) Bay Area or Seattle. The fact that all the schools of Buddhism are now here in the U.S. living side by side together is new in the 2,600 years of, of Buddhist history. It is the first time that all the schools are coexisting in one place. So that's exciting.
0: Right. You said that when you were young and growing up, it wasn't so simple to say you were Buddhist or to even be a Buddhist. Why was that?
5: Well, because I always had this image that people thought Buddhism was some kind of Asian cult where people stared at each other's navels. (laughs) And and I remember in junior high school being asked, hey, what's your religion? And I couldn't say, as you were hinting, that I'm a Buddhist. So I kind of said something very meekly, oh, I go to the Buddhist church in town. And so that's how it was back in early 60s.
0: So I guess it's changed a lot since then. As you point out, we have probably more diverse schools side-by-side in this country than most anywhere else in North America. How is that then distinct from Buddhist Asia? Are there not, say, in Japan, several schools living side by side?
5: Yes. For example, in Kyoto, you have all the Buddhist schools represented there, but they're all of Japanese Buddhism, mm-hmm. which is not the case in Los Angeles. I remember uh, visiting a Thai temple, and right across the street, there was a Korean Buddhist temple and another temple down the street. And so I found that very exciting. The scope of Buddhism is broader in the u.s
0: you break us down into different and distinct groups do you want to walk us through that
5: oh yes yeah i divided the buddhist schools into four groups and first asian american buddhism that started before the second world war and asian american buddhism after the war or after 1965 and the third is the convert buddhists based primarily on meditation Tibetan, Zen, and Vipassana group. And the last one, the fourth one, would be Buddhism based on chanting, specifically uh, Soka Gakkai International, SGI America.
0: You know, for a long time, these groups seemed to exist entirely separately from one another. In fact, when Tricycle was founded, you saw this separation in evidence. And as the magazine has evolved, it has become ever more inclusive. What is then the upside of a multi-denominational, pluralistic Buddhist scene in American cities, or a land of many dharmas, as you so aptly put it?
5: I recall with much fondness, when I was active in the Buddhist Council of Northern California, I got to meet convert Buddhists and Buddhist monks from Thailand, and I learned a lot from them. In fact, especially the Vietnamese monks, they were very inspirational. So in that sense, learning from others and being inspired, that would be the upshot of being in a group of diverse Buddhist groups.
0: I want to ask you about your book, Jewels. Can you tell me what the impetus behind it was?
5: Well, for one, I didn't think that there were enough uh, books for young people. And I wanted to share my own experience of being a Buddhist youth in America. Writing the book was meant to give confidence to uh, young people by knowing a little bit more about Buddhism.
0: Right. In other words, the confidence that you lacked when you were very
5: young. Yes. And also, I'm very concerned about future Buddhism in America, and we need to inspire younger people. And so hopefully my book has both history, doctrine, and how to deal with difficulties in life, like breaking up. And also I have a section on Buddhist humor, which I like. If you talk about American Buddhism, that's one of the features of American Buddhism. And so I try to talk about serious issues of Buddhism through use of humor.
0: So you think that humor characterizes, to some extent, American Buddhism?
5: Yes, I would say quite a bit. Mm -hmm. There's always been religious humor in American religion. And I think that's really carried over to Buddhism. And I tell American Buddhist jokes in Japan, sometimes it doesn't go over very well because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the one about the hot dog and the, you know...
0: Make me one with everything. Yeah,
5: and there's a (laughs) follow-up, you know, about that one. Uh, The monk gives $20 to the vendor, mm -hmm. doesn't get his change back. So he's, he's waiting, waiting, and finally gets frustrated and says, where is my change? And the vendor says, sir... The change must come from within. <laughs> and
0: okay, I don't think I heard that second part. Oh, you haven't. Oh, that one is I even did. better. Well, next time our printer bill comes due, I'll remember that one.
5: <laughs> yeah, uh, another one you can do whenever you fail to put an attachment to a friend, and you forget, and the friend says, "Hey, you forgot your attachment," and then you answer and says, "Ah, I'm just trying to practice good Buddhism. No attachments." <laughs> I see. (laughs) I've used that quite a bit.
0: Well, I want to ask you another question about your book. Yes. And Patti Nakai, another Shin Buddhist priest, said that what all Buddhist traditions have in common is the Three Jewels. Uh, First, can you tell us what the Three Jewels are for our listeners?
5: Well, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Mm -hmm. And so the Buddha is our exemplar, and Dharma is a teaching that he taught. And then the Sangha, represents um, the Buddhists. Well, originally it was limited to monks and nuns. That's how it's used in Asia quite a bit, especially in the monastically-centered Buddhist countries. But now in the U.S., we use Sangha in a broader sense that includes the lay people. Right. So I prefer that vision of Sangha that includes not only the clergy but also the lay people as well.
0: So you also use the idea of jewels to describe Indra's net. Can you say something about Indra's net? And how do you see that describing Buddhism in North America?
5: Well, Indra's net is a well-known metaphor that originates in the Huayan or Avatansaka or Garland Sutra in China. I love this metaphor and it goes something like this, that in the sky there is a net that extends infinitely outward. And at the eye of each net, there is a jewel. And so you have infinite number of jewels, and the jewels are all illuminating. But each jewel does not illuminate by itself. Where does it get its source? It gets from other jewels. So all the jewels are mutually illuminating each other. And the other aspect of that is that each jewel is different. No one jewel is exactly the same each unique color, light, size. And so it really, in my view, expresses the content of enlightenment or how things really are. So interdependence. Mm-hmm. So I think this Indra's Neto jewel is a wonderful symbol for what we are striving, especially in America, where there's so much emphasis on individualism. We need a Buddhist notion of interdependence to bring us back to reality.
0: You also talk about it's as if all of these schools here are reflecting each other and shaping each other. I found that very interesting. But one of those jewels would be Shin Buddhism. You're a Shin Buddhist priest. And it's not a school that convert Buddhists came to initially in great numbers. Yet I'm noticing in Orange County, California, for instance, and elsewhere, that a lot of non-Japanese or non-Asian Americans are coming to Pure Land schools. Are you noticing that or is that just in my head?
5: I think, yes, you certainly are. And Orange County is a good example of ordinary folks joining in the temple there. And it's probably because it has its family centered It's attractive to people who don't necessarily have to sit in meditation. And it offers a lot of family-oriented programs, from basketball to cooking, etc.
0: Right. We covered a story about that in Orange County. In particular, there were a lot of Hispanic Americans who were joining the temple, too. So it seems to me that the face of Buddhism will continue to change in the country in what ways we don't necessarily know, but the rich mix will certainly have something to do with that. You know, it's interesting, too, that Shin Buddhism has been among the most socially progressive in this country, anyway.
5: Yes, yes. In terms of engaged Buddhism, I was actually involved in a group called the Relevant American Buddhists. In 1972, we started this group, and we were concerned about how to apply Buddhism to everyday concerns in an American context. And that's one of the reasons why I myself, coming out of this tradition, have felt very strongly about how we need to speak out, talk about ourselves more, especially in the context of what is happening today with the harassment and violence against Asian Americans.
0: Right, that's very well put. I want to come back for a moment to your book, because Uh in your book, and also in the article in Tricycle, you talk about why Buddhism might have particular appeal in this country. And you have a list of reasons, which I found very interesting. Do you want to talk about those?
5: Well, I would say the greatest reason is meditation. And meditation is the one thing that has drawn a lot of people. And it has to do with the change in the religious paradigm. I call it going from religion of belief to religion of awakening. And there's a major shift going on, not only in in North America, but in in Europe and, and even in Asia, where the younger generation are turning to Buddhism because it doesn't represent the traditional religious worldview. You know, God, faith, repentance, belief, those features are now changing so that people are looking at religions with interest in being more centered, interconnected, peace, harmony, etc. And so uh, that is why people take interest in Buddhism for those reasons.
0: So I'd just like to ask you a little bit about your work. You're both a scholar of Buddhism and you're also a Jodo Shinshu priest. And I'm wondering how these two roles work together, because you know how you're an American, you taught at American universities, you were educated here— And you know how they keep church and state separate. So in the academy, they're not too fond of people who are actually practicing or teaching in that tradition. Can you say something about that?
5: Well, I think I'm a little bit of an exception in that my concern has always been both. And I've taught not at any of the... Regular American universities at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, where I studied and then became a faculty member for 10 years, and then got a job in Tokyo, Japan at a Jodo Shinshu based liberal arts school. So I was able to be in both camps. Mm-hmm. And so it really hasn't been much of attention because I'm a Buddhist scholar and a Shin priest, but I have been able to do both in a working situation that was amenable to someone like myself. Now, if I had worked at a state university in Ohio, that would have been quite different.
0: Oh, that's good, I guess. Uh, So many people have felt that tension.
5: Yeah, I think it's getting easier for other scholars, even if they worked in regular university in America, because people accept Buddhist scholars who can also be Buddhist at the same time. Although it would still be hard to, you know, bring out the religious part of themselves when they teach. But there are many Buddhist scholars who are uh, Buddhist and they're not afraid to say so.
0: I wanna go back for a moment. You mentioned the wave of anti-Asian violence in the country and I'm sure you know better than I do, it's nothing new. You go from the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the internment of the Japanese Americans during the war, the recent attacks on Japanese temple. There's a history here. There is, and you said it's time that you speak out. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you say a little bit more about that? Because there were, for instance, reparations, but that was a gesture. Mm. But there seems that we're at a kind of reckoning now. After all, these Americans have been here for centuries now. And it's sort of like we've reached a pivotal point in this whole relationship. How do you feel about that?
5: I was actually born in Japan, but at the age of 10, my mother, who was born in Hawaii, returned to the US. And so now I have a grandson who is a sixth generation in America. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a long history, especially with Japanese Americans because of the incarceration, etc. We have been rather quiet in terms of, you know, talking about ourselves. And and the temples became a place where people circled their wagons to protect themselves from Mm -hmm. the outer world. But that's really changing now. And with my kids and their kids, I think that they don't need the temples anymore. So they don't need to uh, rely on the temples as a a refuge, cultural and social refuge. But I'm talking about this because people who experienced incarceration, they didn't really talk about their experiences. I mean, the second generation. So the third generation our age, we didn't know much about what they actually went through. I have felt that we need to go beyond our small circles and to talk about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of where I am in, as a, a Buddhist scholar and as a minister, I am very happy that Tricycle has been open to hear us.
0: There seems to be a real tension here between America's ideals of inclusivity and tolerance, pluralism and so forth and the wave of anti-Asian violence we're seeing now, and anti-Semitism and anti-Black violence, the list goes on. And I wonder how you're looking at that as a father and a grandfather whose American grandchildren are seeing this happen now.
5: Well, uh, obviously I'm very concerned, and it's something that is not new, but um, has really been exacerbated recently. One way of dealing with this for myself is that I tell my kids and how it's important for us to be rooted in our Buddhist faith, beliefs, and outlook, whereby we can develop confidence in ourselves. The problem is not with us. The problem is with those who perpetrate these kinds of actions, so that we don't internalize it ourselves. Not feeling inferior or negative about ourselves, but know that we're fine the way we are. And, of course, you have to be vigilant. That is one of the concerns that, you know, even though you may be confident in yourself, but if you get attacked, there's no, you know, you got to deal with that on a different level.
0: In a sense, what you're saying is that one can know that one has a refuge that can't be taken away.
5: Yes, uh-huh. And I'm very heartened by that. And uh, we need to do more because if you don't speak out in the U.S., people don't listen, The people don't hear. And I think the onus is, is on, on us as well.
0: You talk about the younger generation not needing the temples as a refuge, the way their forebears did. Mm-hmm. How do you see that affecting their relationship to the religion?
5: Well... Even though they may be interested in Buddhism religion, they won't be attending. It's a similar trend that you see in general population where, you know, 40% of those who are 40 and younger are not affiliated anymore.
0: It's the spiritual but not religious thing, right?
5: Yes, that tendency you find within the traditional Buddhists in America.
0: Well, can I have to say, reading your book, the impression I got is that you're an optimistic person. (laughs) (laughs) And you see reason to celebrate with all of these different traditions in the same place. It's just a a wonderful thing to see. Uh, Are you optimistic about the future of Buddhism in the country?
5: Optimistic in a sense that it's here to stay. And I would think that the people who think a little bit deeply about things and not take things at face value, they would find meaning in Buddhism. I don't see it becoming a religion... That would be 25% of the American people in the foreseeable future. But amongst those who are sensitive about others, I think we'll find Buddhism attractive.
0: Yeah, its influence seems to belie its numbers. Its numbers are few, but the influence in the culture seems to be far greater than its numbers would suggest.
5: Yes, and the fact that the Tricycle magazine, I found it when I went back to California a couple years ago. I found it in a grocery store. (laughs) And I was really excited. You know, like early 60s, I would never have imagined that you'll find a Buddhist magazine at a grocery store. So in that sense, I'm optimistic.
0: (laughs) Well, that's really encouraging.
5: (laughs) Can I tell you one last joke? Sure. Okay, well, there was a devout uh, Buddhist uh, medical examiner. Have you heard that one?
0: No, I haven't.
5: Okay, well, he got fired. And, And the reason was that Every time he wrote on a death certificate, the cause of death, every time he wrote the same thing.
0: What was that? Birth. (laughs) That's very good.
5: Yeah, I I think it's really profound, (laughs) you know. If you're not born, you're not going to die.
0: That's a good one I'm going to remember.
5: Yeah, and then you can go on and talk about the whole Buddhist worldview of birth and death, and it goes to the heart of the fundamental Position.
0: Well, that is the cause of death, though, isn't it? Birth. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend who was quite ill, and he, and he said, why is this happening to me? And at a certain point, he said, because I'm alive. <laughs> yeah. It's a similar thing. Yeah. So thank you so much, Ken. It was great speaking with you.
5: Well, same here, and it's uh, it was a pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me. been
0: listening to Mindy Newman, Kaya Fisher, Kenneth Tanaka, and Zuvankan Tamavongsa here on Tricycle Talks. Their writing appears in Tricycle's Summer Issue, which you can find at tricycle.org magazine. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write to us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest and Julia Hirsch with help from Amanda Lim Patton. I'm James Shaheen, editor in chief of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. One last joke, Ken. <laughs>
5: <laughs> the one that I like, it actually comes from a scripture. There's a guy clinging to the edge of a cliff, and he sees the ground 100 yards below. And so he's clinging on for dear life. And the Buddha appears right above the cliff. And so he says, oh, good, Buddha, save me, save me. And the Buddha says, I will let go. <laughs> okay, now I have to explain this is because he thinks it's 100 yards above the ground. But Buddha knows it's only one yard above the ground. So from the Buddha's perspective, we get all upset about things Thinking that we're 100 yards above the ground, but in fact, it's only one yard above the ground, so let go. And so this goes to the heart of Buddhism. And uh, I just love this one because it applies to everything we do.
0: You could also say, Don't worry, there is no ground.
5: Ah, <laughs> uh, there is no ground. No, that's a little tough, <laughs> I think.